hope you will bring the Bible. It is definitely the most important gift that God has given to me that I can touch and hold is, is this book. It is a light or path. And so I would encourage you um, strongly to bring it with you so you can follow along, especially when you get into parts where you don't understand unless you can see it. Um, and perhaps it's good to just stop and just say why this is so important for us and what we hope to accomplish when we when we look at the scripture and, and it is our heart um, as a leadership and it's my heart that every time that this book is opened that one main thing happens and that is God is lifted up as 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 sufficient and big and glorious and and um, capable of being trusted in every situation. I mean that's that's really what people need more than anything, more than a government that takes care of us or gives us stimulus checks. Um, is to have a view of God that, that carries you through difficult times, to have a view of God that knows that though you don't necessarily have a job at the end of the month, you know that your God will provide for you because he's big enough to provide for you. You're on your deathbed, you're dealing with cancer. You know that God is big enough and strong enough to carry you through those dark nights of the soul because he's awesome and big. And that's why we come to the scripture. One of the things the scripture does more than anything else, it's the main purpose of the scripture, is to make much of and give us a grand vision of just who God is, that he can be trusted at every point in life. And so it's with that that purpose that we open the scriptures together here in chapter 8. And I believe it has a, we have a picture here of God that is, that is massive and brings food for our souls and depth to our faith. So with that said, I want to pray once again that God would use this to deep in our faith and incite a greater passion for Christ and for living a holy life. Let's pray together. Father, I, uh, we come to you once again uh, just asking and begging that you would um, empower these words and that you would take these words of Scripture and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would infuse them into our hearts and into our souls, that we would um, go beyond the mere understanding of the mind to an understanding of the heart that allows us to trust you with everything, to trust you with our kids and, and our teenagers and the troubles that they bring to life and the troubles they're facing in life, that we would be able to trust you with our finances and trust you with our spouses, trust you with our work, trust you with our careers and our purpose, to trust you with, with where you're guiding us and leading us, to trust you with our government, to trust you with what's going on in the culture around us, to trust you with the eternal salvation of our souls. So, Lord, please, we just beg that you would open our eyes, the eyes of the heart, to see and in seeing to believe and in believing to find courage and encouragement to be people you've called us to be who live in hope and to live in joy and to live in the shadow of your love and the freedom of sons and daughters. And so we ask, oh God, please, um, on the, in the name of Jesus and also by the power of your mighty spirit that you would, you would meet us tonight through this uh, through this exposition of your word. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, King Solomon, as you well know, who is the wisest king of the Old Testament, wrote a proverb um, that kind of outlines the danger of having many friends and the treasure or the wisdom of having the kind of friend, true friend, loyal friend, that will stick with you through thick and thin. Um, his wisdom, his proverb goes like this, that a man of of many companions may come to ruin. But there is, a, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I've come to find that there is truth to that particular proverb, that if you spread your friendships out so um, thin, that when difficult times come, 
that oftentimes you find yourself standing alone because there is not that one true, trusted, loyal friend who's with you at every, every point. Um, someone who's willing to stick with you when you're not popular. The kind of friend that you can, who knows all of the good and the bad and the ugly of your life, and they still like you. They still pray for you. They still want to be with you. Somebody who can see you, you know, blubbering, um, your makeup's running, your nose is running. You have the kind of breath that could kill a yak, and yet they still, still will hang with you and be there for you. The kind of friend who will stick with you when you're going through the embarrassment of a foreclosure, or you find yourself, um, your wealth being diminished, and as a result of that, the status diminishing with it in the social circles you run with, knowing that people are talking about you, and yet there's still someone who hangs with you and loves you despite all that. They're still devoted and committed. People who would be willing to, to just, just be there, whether you're the happy-go-lucky life of the party or whether you're on your bed, unable to do anything you used to do, that they still are with you. That, that's the kind of rare friend um, that enables you to keep going in life. You know, and I hope everybody has one of those friends. And, and of course, most of us, I hope, are endeavoring to be that kind of friend to other people, to our, our spouses or to one or two others. But, but that kind of a friend is a rare gem and also a, a real gift of grace. But having said that, while we might and should endeavor to be that kind of friend to another, as well as find that kind of friend for our lives so that we might experience what Solomon says, the wisdom of knowing that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, the one who ultimately fits that bill and lives up to that, that job requirement of, of a friend that sticks closer than a brother really is God himself. God, a friend of, of sinners. And uh, King David, who is the father of King Solomon, understood um, perhaps better than many just how wonderful it was to know and how encouraging it was to know that everywhere he went, God would never abandon or forsake him, whether he was in battle or in times of peace. So that he could, out of his reflection of Psalm 139, he could say, if I'm in the heavens, I know you're there. And if I make my bed in the underworld of the dead, he says, I know you'll be with me there. And if I fly on the wings of the dawn on a distant shore, I know you're there. And he's not simply talking about the presence of God. He's talking about the loving kindness of God, that God would never let him go. Whether he was lying down in in, um, pastures, green pastures, or beside still waters, or he's walking through the bone-chilling darkness of the valley of the shadow of death, he knew he'd never be forsaken, that that's the kind of friend God is to his people, that he never leaves them, never forsakes them, is always with them. So that David could say in the Psalms, your love is better than life because it never abandons your people. And this particular chapter, Romans, is perhaps one of the most expressive of that particular truth than any other chapter in the whole Bible. That is that God's love is unbreakable. And it shows in these grand sweeping um, panoramas just how exhaustive and all-inclusive God's love is for us. So that as we've seen in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, we find that God frees us from sin by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to take our, our place. And then in verses 4 through 16, God not only supplies Christ, but also his Spirit to empower us to live And then in verses 17 through 27, that same spirit provides a promise that someday he's going to renovate the entire creation and these bodies which are falling apart. So there is this this grand sweeping provision in every way, shape, or form of deliverance from past sins and empowerment in the present and also promise of the future 
So that he climaxes this chapter with these amazing, powerful, eloquent, almost poetic words where Paul is able to then say, in light of everything that the the Father has done for us in giving Jesus for sin and giving the Spirit to live in us and then giving us a hope beyond death, he goes on to say basically that he's convinced, and we just sang the words, that neither life nor death, angels or demons, neither present nor future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. He understood that 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 love was immutable, invincible, irrefutable, and irrevocable. That once God places his love on you in a saving way, that love will never break and he will never relent. Even if you wander, he will pursue you in his love. And I am thoroughly convinced, based upon Scripture, that once he makes you a child, you are his child for good, and that love is never revoked, ever which is an an amazing truth for a person whose life has been crushed by the harsh realities of life, is knowing that God's love will never let me go. Now that's, if you will, kind of one of the overarching themes of this chapter is the love of God for his people that's unbreakable and so forth. But that leads to to a nagging question. A question that nags those of us who are very sensitive to sin and sensitive to eternity. And that is, How is it then that I know that I'm actually a child of God? How is it that I know that those promises are mine? How is it that I know that he loves me that way? Because according to Scripture, he doesn't love everybody that way. There are people who are children of God who live forever with him, and there are people who are not children of God. You're going to see it in this passage. So how is it that we know? This is a subjective question. How do I know that he loves me that way? Or to put the question in a different way, how do I know that I'm actually saved? How do I know that I'm a child that can claim the promise of a, of a resurrection? How is it that I know that he's actually forgiven me and I'm his child? That's a, that's a question that nags a lot of people, like I said, who are sensitive to sin and they see themselves sin and they wonder, how can I be a Christian? And then they doubt their salvation. Or they're sensitive to eternity and, and the idea of hell scares the tar out of them, so they find themselves doubting again. How do I know that I'm not going there, but I'm going there? How do I know my destination's heaven and the new creation and not the other place? How do I know? That's an important question. It's a question that has nagged me from time to time. How do I know subjectively that I am a true follower of Christ and my life is in his hands and no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand? How do I know that's true of me? I mean, it would have been nice or would be nice if we could go up into God's big library and pull out that big, huge book, fat book called the Lamb's Book of Life. That is, uh, uh, Revelation speaks of this book in which all of the book of Revelation, which all the names of God's people are etched into it, all those who are eternally saved. I grant it is probably a symbol um, because God doesn't need a book to record our names. His mind is perfect and infallible. Nevertheless, it's this image of this book with all these names etched in it. It'd be really nice to go up into his library, pull it down, and get to the D section and see on page 10,441, there's my name, Dan Deckard. I know, I'm done, I'm in the camp, I'm saved. We would go, but God hasn't seen fit to give us that book. And I think it would run contrary to faith that there is a design to ambiguity to require us to believe and to trust. So how is it then that we know? How do you know you're a child of God? It is one of the most 
question, uh, important questions that you can wrestle with and come to an answer to because it, it deals with your eternal destiny. How do you really know in your own heart that you're one of his? The short answer is, it's, is the spirit, is the way by which we know that we are his. And so these particular verses right in the middle of, of chapter 8 on the love of God, unbreakable love of God, Christ, spirit, and so forth, are these three solitary verses that talk about assurance and how the Spirit specifically assures us that we are God's kids and we don't have to fear death. These three verses, verses 14, 15, and 16. So that's the intent and the kind of the direction is, I understand that the love of God is unbreakable, but how is it that I know that I'm one of the recipients of that love? And these verses answer that question. How does the Spirit assure me that I'm one of God's kids? I said we're going to look at verses 14, 15, and 16, but it flows out of verses 12 and 13, so I'm going to back up there and begin reading there. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now here's our verses. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You'll notice, weave through these three verses are the idea of sonship or belonging to a family. The word child and sonship and son over and over again. And the Spirit's role in assuring and testifying that we're actually God's kids and that we can live in the freedom of knowing that he loves us that way and his love will never let us go. These three verses lay out for us, if you will, three distinctive ways in which the, the Spirit assures us that we're God's kids. Um, and actually, they kind of flow right through the verses. The first one's found in verse 14. Where And I'm going to summarize it this way, that the Spirit assures us that we are God's kids, we're His children, and eternal objects of His love. Nothing can separate us. Um, the Spirit assures us by changing us. But as assure, the Spirit assures us that we're God's kids as He changes us from one thing into another. Look at verse 14 again with, um, well, with uh, closer eyes maybe. He says, because... Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, in that verse, um, the true evidence that one is a son is that they're led by the Spirit. Because those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So if you're being led by the Spirit, then the idea goes, you're a son, you're a child, you're a kid. You're part of God's eternal family. He will never turn his love away from you, ever. But that leads to the question, well, what does it mean to be led of the Spirit, for the Spirit to lead you? And for that, we have to back up into verse 13. This is why it's important that you bring your Bible so you can see that there's an important link between verses 13 and 14 that I think helps us understand what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. Because at the end of verse 13, we read, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the, the body, you will live. And then there's no period. It says, comma, because... Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So 14 explains the last part of 13. I think just putting it in, different, in a different um, well, statement. In verse 13, 
the emphasis of responsibility is on us. If you, by the Spirit, the power of God's Spirit indwelling in you, if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because, and then shifts the emphasis now onto what the Spirit does, the leadership he plays in the believer's life. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. In other words, um, being led by the Spirit is another way of saying that our lives are being changed and the misdeeds of the body are being put to death. That is, we're growing. So one of the signs of assurance, one of the marks of assurance, or one of the ways the Spirit assures you that you're one of His, is that you see your life being changed by the leadership of the Spirit. And if the Spirit is in you, He will lead you in that direction. He becomes the Lord of your life, the sovereign master of your life. He begins to call the shots in your life. The Spirit will begin, if He's in here, He'll begin to illuminate new areas that need to be changed. Maybe areas you once thought were okay, but later on in life you realize, oh, that's just a pocket for sin. And He shows that to you. Then He starts to persuade you to leave it. And if you're unwilling to leave it, He will discipline you out of it. That is, the Spirit will lead His people. It isn't some kind of a mysterious, I sense the Spirit leading me that way. It's rather a rather sovereign leadership that the Spirit plays in one's life as He begins to change you from one degree of glory to another. Or to put it in different, again, a different mindset, He forms you into the image of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the perfect Son of God, so it stands to reason one of the marks of a true Son is we're going to start looking more and more like Jesus, and that will authenticate the fact we actually belong to Him. Or use a crude analogy, when I was young, I asked my mom and dad, I said, I still remember where I was at a friend named John Nance's house. I called up my mom and dad because my friend John, he said, you don't look anything like your mom and dad. I bet you were adopted. And I said, I said, no, I wasn't adopted. They told me I was born into this family, but I had this doubt because I was the only one with a particular hair color. Of course, I grew to be 6'3". My parents are both 5'8". And so I called my dad and I said, was I adopted? And he just laughed on the other end of the line and says, no, you're not adopted. We had you. I watched you come out. You're ours, you know. And... Um, and, but the interesting thing is that I grew through life. Now, if you look at pictures of me and my parents, you're like, oh, of course. Like the resemblance is, is, is striking, especially between my mom and, mom and me, the face, and my sisters. We well look alike. I, like, I know I belong to the family because I start to resemble the family. And that's just a, perhaps a crude analogy of saying, you know you're a son of God when your start, life starts to conform to the son of God. And as it is, then you know, the Spirit is at work in my life, and I'm one of God's kids. So that's, that's one of the ways right here that, this, that, that, that we know that the Spirit assures us is that He leads us, a.k.a. He changes us from one degree to another to be more like Christ. In other words, the point is simply this, that we grow in assurance as we grow in obedience. R.C. Sproul put it really well. He said this, and I'm going to paraphrase. He said that, the blessing of assurance is the blessing of an obedient life. That is, it is the blessing that comes with sanctification, that process by, where, by which we, we change. And that's what the Lord is doing. Sometimes it's slower than other, others, and sometimes we may not see it ourselves, but it's still happening if the Spirit's in you, and others should be able to see, people who are honest, be able to see, yeah, I've seen you grow over the years. Now, some, some people are thinking that salvation, that God lays out for us here is, is just a moment in time, past tense. But it's not. It starts past tense, started at my conversion, and then it continues. It's a process that we're going through as God is saving us, as he's changing us. 
And then one day he will bring that to fruition as he raises us from the dead, and then the work will be complete. But that's the entire process. It's a little bit like buying an old dilapidated foreclosed house that somebody kicked the walls in and the doors are hanging and, and uh, there's a smell of cat urine ground into the carpet and it's one of those houses nobody else wants. Well, what God does in, in, in salvation is, is he, he buys the old dilapidated house. That's you and me. We may not see ourselves that way, but that's how, we, that's how he sees us. The dilapidated house that nobody else wants and, and he basically purchases it. By a sheer act of grace, he pays for it with the lifeblood of his own son. But it doesn't stop there. That God the Father says, now I'm going to move in my contractor. And the contractor, of course, is the spirit of the living God who comes into the home and he begins his work of renovation. I've seen extreme home makeover. That's exactly what the spirit of the living God does in a person's life over the duration of their life is he begins to renovate the entire project. And he's going to go from room to room of your heart and life. He's going to go from wall to wall, from ceiling, uh, ceiling to floor, from roof to foundation. And he is going to renovate the entire thing. That's what the Spirit of a living God is going to do. That's what he should be doing in you. And as you see the renovation taking place, then you know that the Holy God indwells my heart and he is changing me. As we cooperate with him in surrendered but active faith. That's, that's, that's what the Spirit does in, in your life. Renovates. And as He does, then He testifies to you. You're one of my kids. You're a child. And God's love can never be broken. I know that's, I see that in my own life in different ways. I know as the longer I live in the Lord, um, the more often He leads me through hallways of my heart. And He comes to a door. And the Spirit of living God, and He doesn't speak audibly to me, but He does convict me and He prompts me, and he definitely tells me, Dan, there's a closed door right here in your heart or in your life. And I need in this room because there's stuff in there that you haven't surrendered to me yet. Could be a sin. Could be something good that I'm holding on to too tightly that I shouldn't. It's an idol. And the Spirit of the living God is saying, Dan, you need to open this door right here in your heart because I need to go in there and if you don't let me in, I will push my way in. So it would be better if you would surrender this to me at this point rather than me taking you through the difficulty of a disciplinary process and me having to force the door open. I mean, that's what the Lord has done and continues to do in my life is he keeps uncovering new areas and new doors and saying, I'm going to this room now. And he chooses the rooms, by the way. You don't. And he shows you something about yourself you never knew before. And you're like, wow, that's not pretty. That's not pretty. And then, then he says, that's okay. Jesus already died for it, but now we're going to clean it out. So trust me and work with me with your active, surrendered faith, and we're going to clean this house. And someday, someday, the house is going to be clean. That's when you're raised from the dead, but someday, that's the process. So I guess the kind of the punchline is you have to ask yourself the question, have I seen the spirit of the living God renovating my heart? It may slow down sometimes. There'll be times when you can't detect the growth, but is he doing that? Is he showing you your sin, convicting you of your sin? And then are you seeing progress in those areas? Because if you are, then I think you are, you bear the marks of a child of the Lord and you can live in the freedom of knowing he loves me because he's doing this in me. He cares that much to do that in me. So that's one of the ways that the Spirit assures us in here is that he changes us. 
a.k.a. he leads us. That's one of the proofs of being a son. There's a second one, and it has to do with fear. Found in verse 15 of verse eight, uh, chapter 8, where he says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. In other words, he's saying here that the spirit of the living God in you, there's something he does not do, and there's something that he does do. What he does not do is make you a slave again to fear, giving us the distinct impression that at one point we were slaves to fear, but then with the spirit coming in, that has changed, and now we've been given a spirit of sonship, which isn't slavery to fear, but freedom. And I think here in verse 15, the fear that we were once enslaved to is the fear that God was going to smoke us down. That is the fear of the thunderbolt, the fear that when you die and face him, you're going to face the end of an angry finger saying, you're doomed. The fear of God is judge. The fear of God is the one who pours out wrath, that, that the spirit comes in and he takes away that dread of the wrath of God. Now, let me just caveat here and say that there still is an appropriate fear, which is the kind of reverence that anyone should have to one who is called the creator, maker of heaven and earth, the Almighty. But the kind of panicked fear that God is now this angry judge with me is or begins to be taken away by the Spirit. I think there's still process involved here where he transforms that fear into the freedom of of being a son, which is a rather beautiful picture that he takes away the fear of of a wrathful god and and convinces us that we're no longer slaves but sons and that to me is a rather remarkable image i i love the fact that the lord gives us images that are so rich with affection and rich with feeling and rich with endearment that when god wanted to communicate his relationship to his people he used the analogy or the metaphor or the relationship of father to son or father to daughter. And who hasn't been in a place where you've had kids where you don't understand how deep the affection runs and how much you as a father want your kids to live in the freedom of your protection, your love, and your provision. I mean, that is the image he gives us. And the Spirit comes in to awaken us to the fact that we're sons. We're no long, we no longer stand under the condemnation of God. That's verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no more condemnation for us. And the Spirit convinces us, us of that and allows us to live in the freedom of what it means to be a son or a daughter. I remember before I was ever a father, my dad, I was trying to console my dad because one of my siblings was, um, got really deeply involved in drugs and some relationships that weren't good. And my dad is a good Christian man, and I remember him just, just disconcerted over this wayward child of his and and i was trying to console him and i consoled him in a way that worked to the exact opposite and i said dad you can look on the bright side you know you have two kids that are still going the right direction and two out of three that's not bad as far as odds go (laughs) now that might have comforted me i didn't know what it's like to be a father but i didn't comfort him because fathers don't think in terms of odds with their children do they He said something like this as a paraphrase. He says, Danny, someday you're going to be a father and you'll understand that it doesn't doesn't help that two of them are doing okay and one's not because she'll forever be my daughter. And I will always do my best to provide what's necessary for her 
no matter what she does. And then I came to be a father myself. And, I, and, and anybody who's a father or a parent, you know this. There's nothing you wouldn't do so that they could live in the freedom of your protection, of your love and provision, because they will always be your son. They will always be your daughter. And that's how I want my kids to be able to live in my, my household. I'm not perfect as a father, far from perfect, but I want my kids to know my dad would never harm me. I want them to know that my, my dad, he will do his best to provide for me. Even if he has to take the bread out of his own mouth and put it in my mouth, I know my dad will provide for me. To live in that kind of a love is a freeing thing. And what he's saying here is that one of the things the Spirit of God does in us is he makes us aware from the inside out, like we just sang, that I am, I am a son to a father. And I live, and he wants me to live, and he wants you to live in the freedom of his love. To know that you will be a son or a daughter forever. And to not fear him as the, as the angry punisher any longer, but to love him and to live in the freedom of the fact that he's already taken care of it in Jesus. He's now given the Spirit. Now live in the freedom of what it means to be a son or a daughter. That is a freeing truth. It's a truth to grasp, but it's also a truth that is embodied and is produced by the Spirit in our soul when we understand that God has already provided for it all and I can trust Him as my Father. It's one of the ways that we find ourselves assured by the Spirit. Again, as He begins to transition that fear of the wrath of God to the freedom of being a son and a daughter. And then there's one final one. Again, those are two, verse 14 and 15. Ways that the Spirit assures us is that He changes us. We see that. We know we're His kids because He's doing that in us. And He also he impresses upon us the fact that we no longer have to fear Him, but now we can live in the freedom of His love, His sons and His daughters. And the last one here has to do with praying. Is that the Spirit of God assures us that we're His kids and eternal objects of His love as we pray. And it's not just the form of praying, but it's the heart of praying that the Spirit attests to our being sons and daughters that makes a difference. You find here, this is the last verse, verse 16, excuse me, last part of verse 15 and into 16. He continues on saying, but you received the spirit of sonship and by him, that him is to the spirit, by him, the same spirit that takes away fear and produces freedom, um, the same spirit that leads us out of darkness into life. It says, and by him, the spirit we cry, and here's this interesting word, Abba, Father. And I think verse 16 is an explanation of that last part. By him we cry out, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit, or to our spirit is another translation, that we're God's children. Or if I was to paraphrase this, that the Spirit testifies to and with our spirit as we cry out with a heart that believes in this intimate love of the Father for us. There's something that happens as we pray that the Spirit uses to remind us and to secure us and to make us confident that we're His people, His kids. And part of that, as I said, it's not just the form of praying. It's not saying I need to pray more and pray more and pray more, but rather it's the it's the catalyst, the impulse of prayer, because it's by Him, the Spirit, that we cry out, Abba, Father. And many of you have studied this passage before and know that Abba is a familial term. It's a term you wouldn't use of somebody who isn't close. It's akin to the little words and names that we often give each other. 
that show endearment or show love or intense affection, like my kids, what they call their grandparents on Deanna's side, it's Nana and Papa. I mean, they love to hear those words because it signifies a uniqueness of love and and intensity of, of trust. When we take our kids up to my parents' place, my kids call them Grandma or Grandpa, or in Isaac's case, he calls them Dama and Dampa, Dampa because he can't pronounce a gur. My mom loves it, even though it sounds like he's swearing at her. Hi, Dama. Hi, Dama. But she loves it. And you know why she loves it? Because it's his name for her. And it's filled with so much affection. And there's something to be said about that. It's When I call up my father, dial 916-663-2191. There, now you have it. You can call him. If someone answers the phone, I do not ask for, excuse me, is the uh, Dr. Lawrence Arthur Deckard there? This is Daniel Deckard. Could I please speak with him? Now he picks up the phone. I'm like, hey, Dad. He's like, hey, Danny. And that's a term that carries with it a whole lot of unstated things. An affection I know he has for me and a trust that I have for him and knowing that he's a father who loves me. And when I call him for advice, that's how you say, Danny, hey, Dad, how are you? Some of you know people would have this Abba translated Dad or perhaps I think that's a little soft or maybe Papa, but it is a familial term of endearment. And it's a sign that you actually are a child of God. And you say, how does that work? It's not just saying the word Abba or Dad or whatever. It's the impulse behind it. A person who has the Spirit in them and, and knows God is one who by nature will cry out for Him. I didn't have to teach my kids how to cry out for me. You didn't have to teach your kids how to cry out for you. I had one of my kids in a moment of insanity decide to, to climb down inside the, the, the laundry chute from the second floor and hang there. I mean, a whole floor down below. And I hear this, Dad, at the top of his lungs. That tells you probably who it was. And he's hanging there. He's just calling out for me. Why? Because he, 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 was, he was ready to drop and he knew there was only one name to call. I didn't have to teach him or train him to do that. He instinctively, as a son who relates to me as his father, knows he calls out for me when he needs help. So someone who actually believes that you have a heavenly father who is protective of you, is intensely passionate about you, intensely protective of you, and in love with you, and cares about your future, when you find yourself in a moment where you, you don't know where your next month's rent payment is going to come, that you instinctively, impulsively say, Father, I don't have anywhere to turn. That's what a child instinctively does. And that's what the Spirit does in us and testifies that we're actually His children as we cry out. As we say, I am in the valley of the shadow of death and I need your strength and I know you're there. I know you love me and I trust you and so here I am. That kind of praying attests to the fact that we actually trust Him as Father and is a sign that we're His kids. So you reverse that where there is no impulse to pray like kids crying out for their parents or even in the positive stopping and saying, Father, thank you. You have blessed me above what I could ever ask or think. I don't deserve to live and you've given me an amazing wife and three kids. You've given me a place to live, an amazing church. I don't deserve thank you. That too is a sign that I love my father and I trust and thank you. You see, 
The expression of prayer comes from the heart, and it's one of the purest expressions that you actually have a relationship with him. That's why he says in here, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. It shows that our heart has been changed and longs for and trusts in a father who's up there who does look down and does care for us, so we're able to say, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Give me strength. And that is a sign that one is a child. So where there is little prayer, little impulse to pray, you've got to ask yourself, am I really a child? A child cries out for its parent instinctively. A true child of God begins, and again, it's a process. Perhaps it starts slowly, but you learn over a life that, you know what, I depend on him for everything. And that's why prayer increases and becomes this unceasing kind of thing that you do through the day, like help me through the day, Father. I know you're here. I know you love me. Father, help my children because I need help in this and this, and I know you can do something about it. It becomes an instinctive voice of a child crying out to a father, and that testifies to the fact that you are a child. And the Spirit does that, testify that you're one of his own. So there you have a a little lesson right in the middle of Romans on how the Spirit assures us. Let me just say this. It's not some past prayer you did at a Billy Graham crusade that becomes the basis of, oh, I'm saved because I said that back then. A lot of people will go to hell who have done that. But it's the present tense question, is the Spirit of the living God in me and changing me? Because fruit will verify that this is real. And, and am I learning to live in the freedom of God's love as a son, free from fear? And do I have this impulse to pray and seek him and depend upon him that comes out in this kind of Abba Father calling to him and asking him and thanking him that shows you actually have a relationship? Well, then if that's true in your life, then I believe you ought to be sure that you are indeed a son or daughter of God. That should be the basis of your, of your assurance, not some past aisle walking, but is the spirit alive in me working today? Is he taking me to new heights? Do I trust him? And do I call out to him? But it cuts the other way too, I think, the passage, because if you come to the conclusion that I really don't see change in my life, and I've never seen change in my life, and I've been going to church for 20 darn years, and I haven't seen change in my life. And I have no compulsion to pray. I pray because I have to pray. Then perhaps you ought to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and that is, Examine to see if you're of the faith. That's not embarrassment. The most important thing you can do is discover that this side of, of, of the end is discover I'm not a child of God. And then in an act of faith to say, Lord of heaven, I know you don't, I don't deserve this, but I'm just a dilapidated house. And by the purchase of the cross, will you take me? And will you indwell me and renovate this life that's so broken? And will you go room to room? And I know sometimes it's going to be easy and sometimes hard, sometimes painful. Sometimes you're going to whisper. Sometimes you're going to break down the door. But will you take this life and will you fill it and will you change it? That is an awareness. And that is an action that should be done today. If that's where you find yourself, that's a good place to be, is realizing you're not what you thought you were and now you're going to seek it out with your whole heart and ask God to renovate your life. And if you do look at your life and you say, I have seen change, not huge changes, but there are changes. And I, I do know more today what it's like to live in the freedom of God's love. And, and I also have this compulsion to pray. Man, I think you ought to be dancing on the rooftops. 
And you ought to rejoice tonight because you know what? No matter what you're going through, no matter what difficulties you're facing physically, economically, or in terms of just struggle with your kids, you know what? God loves you as a son and as a daughter. God will never be taken away from you. And that alone is worth rejoicing and giving thanks for and worshiping and leaving here encouraged because you are a child of God. God is not just a friend who sticks closer than a brother. God is a father who never lets go of his children. And you can rejoice and be glad in that truth alone. He will carry you through and never abandon or forsake you and always provide and protect because you are a child. Lord, I pray that you make that a reality. And for those who don't know you here and are honestly um, able to say, I don't know you, maybe they don't want to know you, in which case that's their choice. On the other hand, Lord, if there are those who, who find stirring of the heart and the mind to want to know you and have you fill their lives um, and to free them as sons and daughters of, of the king of creation, um, that they would come to know the love that provides the cross and also the spirit and a future. And I pray that you would grant them their request and you would, you would reach down and you would turn on the light and you would send your contractor in, your Holy Spirit, and you would be do, begin doing the work of renovation. And I pray for those of us who do see your work, I pray that it would progress at greater levels, recognizing that we do have a responsibility to actively surrender in faith to the work of the Spirit in our lives, fully and completely. And if we're not doing that, Lord, I pray that you would give us that sense, intensify our longing for the Spirit, intensify our commitment to live by Him and seek daily by His strength to put to deed death, the misdeeds of the flesh, and to travel on and journey toward life and life everlasting. So, Lord, please, will you do your work and allow us the freedom of, again, singing as sons and daughters to our Father uh, right now in Christ's name.